Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. I have Andrew Stamp- Stamper returning. We are going to tackle uh, my number three film in our best film series. That film is The Prestige. I uh, originally had slated this to be Memento, but I screened Memento and I was like, eh, man, I'm, I'm really feeling The Prestige more for, for a podcast, though Memento is definitely up there. I mean, it's it's like splitting hairs at this point, right? Right, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> In your top 10. But um, thanks again for joining me, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me again. Absolutely. Um, so I'll, tell, I'll start, I guess, with a little bit of background into how I stumbled onto this film. Because I think that probably plays a role into why it just kind of stands out for me. Okay. So it was actually, I think, 2007, over Christmas break, I was in grad school. And just, you know, just laying on the couch one of my days off and happened to catch this movie on HBO and was just blown away. I was completely just knocked off my, you know, knocked my socks off. I I actually had no idea originally that this was a Christopher Nolan film, (laughs) which is funny because I was a huge fan. I had been a fan of Memento for years so that had kind of cemented him as one of my, you know, filmmakers to keep an eye on at that point. And then when I found out, oh shit, that's Christopher Nolan, then I'm like, oh wow, that uh, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just so like I had no idea it was him. I had, knew nothing about the film, and I think that year the Illusionist had also come out of, or at the same time. And so I remember the marketing for both of them going on pretty close around the same time. So I kind of like dismissed it as, oh, this is like a bullshit, just Hollywood period piece, not realizing that Christopher Nolan was attached. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Hollywood's had that thing where they would pair like certain movies or like it seems like, you know, like uh, you'll not. And I I really feel bad that I'm even putting The Illusionist and... um, uh, the prestige in the same sentence as Dante's peak and volcano. Right. But, uh, but or um, Armageddon and the, the other one that came out that year, but you'll, you'll see these movies that are kind of like paired like, Oh, you know, they're a magic movie. I'll do another magic movie. Um, but uh, I remember when I saw the, the prestige, I did see it in the theater and. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, yeah. Because I, w- I, w- I was kind of like, uh, nerding out on Christopher Nolan films at the time, you know, I had seen, um, you know, obviously Memento and was it insomnia? Yeah. Insomnia. Yeah, did insomnia. And so when this, I was pretty jazzed about it and to the point where like I revolted against the illusionist and I, <laughs> I still haven't seen that film. Yeah. Um, I haven't either. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I'm like, that's it. You know, Christopher Nolan, he's my guy. I'm going to, I'm going to watch this one. And yeah. Um, Thoroughly, thoroughly, you know, enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the ride. Um, but please continue. So where, where would you place this in, in the pantheon of, of Chris Nolan films for you, just out of curiosity? Um, man, I, I don't know. Um, it, you know, this is like the earlier Christopher Nolan days. I mean, shit, actually, does this one, this one still predates even the first Batman, right? Because he did. No, he did. I think it goes, it goes Memento and then Insomnia and then Batman Begins and then The Prestige. That's yeah. So this came. So this came out. At, I'm sorry. This came out after Batman. Right. Okay. Yeah, because he had uh, already worked with Michael Caine for Batman and Begins. Christian Bale for yeah. that matter, right? Yeah. Um, but see, for me, I think my favorite Christopher Nolan movie is The Dark Knight. 
Okay. Um, just because I'd never, I've had never seen a comic book film told in such a way, and I've never seen one ever told in such a way ever since. So for me, that that's like kind of like on the Mount Rushmore of comic book, and I don't even think of it as a comic book movie. I just think of it as as a a really really great crime film that just happened to be based on a comic book. Um, but the Prestige, I mean, it's certainly I certainly enjoy it more than say Interstellar. Uh, or Insomnia, or some of of his other works, but I would put it in. I, I, I can't recall off the top of my head, you know, without creating a list of how many films he's done. But if he's done six or seven or eight or nine or whatever it is, I imagine the Prestige is on that first handful because um, I really, really love uh, Memento. Um, I don't know, maybe for me, maybe it goes Dark Knight, Memento, the Prestige. Okay. For me, I have to I have to say that the Prestige has got to be my favorite Christopher Nolan film, especially after watching Memento and the Prestige back to back. Of course, I do love uh, the Dark Knight as well. I mean, I saw that movie I think seven times in the theater yeah. when it came. Mm-hmm. I think six times on IMAX just because the experience right. was just fucking amazing. It was incredible. Um, actually, so share the same DP. Uh, he works a lot with the same. Uh, director mm-hmm. of photography, Wally Pfister. And I think you can really see that visual style mm-hmm. carry over from the prestige into the dark Knight, And I mean, even probably Batman begins. I haven't seen Batman begins in forever, but I'm sure if you go back and watch it, you can see kind of it's, there's a very similar look. I yeah. felt, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, definitely. I, I kind of separate the dark Knight and the whole, his whole Batman trilogy out from the rest of his films, just because, I feel like there's a lot more studio influence in those movies than there is in some of his other more just, you know, either original or adaptations that he did mm-hmm. prior to or before or later on. So I kind of separate those out as like a different sort of thing um, because I I feel like he didn't quite take the same amount. Like there are certain risks that he didn't take that I think were sort of dictated by this, you know, the blockbuster yeah, um, I can see that, but yeah, for me, when I when I think of the Dark Knight and like when I talk about like crime movies, I mean the 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 whole, what well, like roughly like the whole like first ten fifteen minutes of Dark Knight is just, it's like Michael Mann eat your right. fucking heart out, you know, <laughs> like um, that just the, the the bank heist scene is just it. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm I'm sold. Anything. Even with li- literally. William Fickner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in both films. Mm-hmm. But I guess we should go We should go back, get ourselves back to the prestige. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and ask ourselves if we watch this film closely enough. Do you remember? The, that's like the first line. Are you watching closely? Oh, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will attempt to give this movie a brief plot synopsis. I think it's, it's hard. I might enlist you to kind of fill in the gaps here. It's yeah. really I, hard to find, a, I think, a starting point in terms of plot for this film, since there is so much, you know what I mean, the time, much like Memento, we shift back and forth mm-hmm. between the present day and, you know, and flashbacks and so forth. And there's the narrative is gets really complicated. Yeah. In terms of knowing we are where we are time wise. So the film opens with Michael Caine kind of narrating about um the three parts of a magic trick. The what is the pledge, the turn and the prestige and uh he's displaying there's a very this is one of my favorite shots actually of the film too is 
it's him handling the birds and mm-hmm. there's uh, a shot of we're looking down it's sort of like a line of cages and there's these squares and you can see the different you can see like it's like a long shot it looks there's so much depth mm-hmm. and there's these little i don't know what are they canaries not canaries is a canary yellow canary is yellow kind of i guess these are canaries i'm gonna say that yeah we'll, we'll roll with it yeah canaries anyway so michael uh or wait what michael what am I doing? Michael, <laughs> Michael Caine. Caine. Yes, yeah. Michael Caine. My name's Michael Caine. I like to talk through me teeth a lot. <laughs> but uh, he's narrating about that. And then we are introduced later on, shortly thereafter, to a scene of a courtroom. And he's testifying. Michael Caine is testifying in a trial. And then we learn that um, Borden, who is played by Christian Bale, is on trial for m- murder. He's charged with murdering you Jackman or huge Jackman, as I like to call him. His character, um, Angier or Lord Caldlow, we later find out um, there was a magic trick that supposedly went wrong and Christian Bale's character Borden gets framed for that murder, we later find out. And so that's where we start. And then the narrative sort of makes its way back around to actually, I guess, the beginning of the story to some degree where Christian Bale's character Borden and Angier, which is Hugh Jackman, are apprentice magicians for this other magician. And there is, let's see, his wife, Angier's wife, Rachel, played by Piper Perabu. Um, They do a, it's a water escape from Mm -hmm. a water tank. She ends up dying tragically. Bale's character had tied a knot that was difficult to slip if it became wet. And so she ends up drowning tragically in this in this trick. And obviously Angier is just totally devastated by this and, you know, sort of plots his revenge and becomes obsessed with with destroying Borden from that point. And then shows up. So then the two go on their own. Um, Angier shows up at one of Borden's shows and shoots him in the hand during a bullet catch sort of trick. Um, trying to think what happens next. It's so it's so convoluted. It's hard to even put the pieces together. Um, I do. Then I remember Borden end up, ends up getting married. He starts. He eventually has his transported man trick that. Angier sees and tries to figure out. In the meantime, Angier has enlisted the assistance of, let's see, Olivia Winscombe, played by, what's her name? Um, God, I'm breaking on her name. Uh, Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Yeah, so Scarlett Johansson becomes his lovely assistant. And then there's a bit of back and forth rivalry between those two. Eventually, Angier kidnaps... I guess I didn't even mention that Borden has an an engineer himself mm-hmm. um, called Fallon. So Angier ends up kidnapping him and as sort of ransom because he wants to know the trick to Borden's transported man trick himself. And so he ends up giving him... So I guess he had been given Borden's diary and it was in, there was a cipher... The key to the cipher was a word Tesla, which was a misdirection 
to get Angier to try to go off on this wild goose chase, looking out for the actual historical figure, Nikola Tesla, which ends up taking him to Colorado Springs. He's tr- in the meantime, he's trying to decode the um, Borden's actual journal. And then he does eventually meet up with N- Nikola Tesla, hires him to make this machine that he ends up eventually creating for him that creates a, I guess, a clone or a duplicate, if you will. And then... A double. A double, yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, then he ends up framing framing Borden for his murder. I guess that's sort of the broadest strokes of this plot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, because obviously the movie is told in a kind of like non-linear. Uh, um, what I like about the movie, and I'm sure we'll get into it, is really, I mean, this is kind of like a, when we talk about like act structure, it's kind of like a three act and like a, as far as the film is concerned and it's kind of been told through the, you know, the pledge, the turn, and then the prestige within the movie itself. We're actually getting, as the movie's told, kind of those aspects of it, which is really neat. Um, but essentially, I guess you'd say the really, the, the thing that gets the ball rolling is Hugh Jackman's wife drowns in the, in, um, yeah, that's in, kind of our, what inciting incident. That would be your <laughs> inciting incident. Exactly. And it gets the whole ball rolling with the kind of the, the, I mean, they always had a bit of a rivalry, right? I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, and then even by talking about Tesla versus Edison, I mean, we, we have this whole idea of, of rivalries and one of the themes that they get into, but um, you have these two magicians, these young magicians or illusionists, whatever you want to call it. And they're wanting to outdo the other or really one doing one thing and the other just trying to copy the other one and, and go through extreme lengths and sacrifices and self-sacrifices and to the point where it takes us to the, the, the final act where, when they finally mastered whatever it is that they're going to do, Hugh Jackman takes it to a different level and um, with the idea of framing uh, Christian Bale's character. Yeah, I think I did a shitty job too because uh, Borden does end up getting married and has a, has a child. Mm-hmm. His wife ends up killing herself because we find out later that Borden is living this, essentially he's living a double life. Yep. And so he's taking turns living living life as Fallon and living life as Borden. And so his wife ends up killing herself because she feels so estranged from the other brother or twin. I it's never really clarified what their actual relationship. Imagine there are twins. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm leaning, what I lean towards, but I don't think they ever really specify that out. Yeah. And just the, the, the idea of uh, secrecy, right? I mean, the, the uh, magician never reveals the secrets the point where they um self-sacrifice their own relationships into the point where basically he really was he sacrificed his wife for like to kill herself and then sacrifices himself or his brother to continue on um their their trick so it's 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 a fascinating um story but yeah basic yeah i mean just to summarize the overall plot, uh, two magicians, uh, magis- uh, illusionists uh, that <laughs> that um, go through extreme lengths of of uh, trying to outdo one another to really, at the end, both of their own demise in one way or 
one way or another. And it's funny too, because we talked about this, I think in the first podcast that we did, because we got onto a little bit of about the, we even mentioned the prestige, I think in that podcast. And I was talking about the sort of Nolan tropes of the dead wife, mm-hmm. which is yeah. this really consistent theme across so many of his stories mm-hmm. going, you know, obviously we had Memento in this, the prestige, we get two dead wives. Yep. <laughs> Um, Interstellar, Inception, I've, D- Dunkirk is like one of the few, and I don't e- remember Insomnia. It's been so long since I've seen Insomnia, and I then, can't even remember. Know, and even though I wasn't married, Rachel dies oh, in yeah, Dark Knight. <laughs> right. There's so, like, if women don't have a good time no. in his films. But uh, let's let's walk through the actors in this, because I think that, to me, this is my favorite of Hugh Jackman performance probably ever. And I, not to undersell his talent, I think he is an immensely talented actor, probably mm-hmm. underrated to be quite honest. I mean, he's a talented singer and performer. I mean, he's been on Broadway. The guy has chops. I don't think yeah. it was apparent at this time, whenever this film came out, how how serious of an actor that he was. But yeah, I just, he really killed it. I mean, he just the range of emotions from the grieving husband to the bitter, you know, the bitterness he felt towards Borden and the exaltation of the the love that he got from the audience, you know. Mm-hmm. And then shit, even uh, just kind of like the um, the comical aspect of him playing the oh, devil yes. himself, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. That that shit was hilarious. It to was. Me. It was. It was, it was <laughs> great. So yeah, I mean, you have the the many different hats that Hugh Hackman uh, wore in this film. Um, yeah, fantastic performance. Really, really crushed it in, in many aspects. So the his other character, his double that he played was Root. Yeah, Root. And what there was a great line he had. It was, um, "You drink too if you knew that world half as well as I do." Mm-hmm. And then. It's funny too. Later on, whenever uh, Michael Caine's character Cutter brings out Root on stage when he's all dressed up and in quote unquote makeup as Angier, <laughs> and he goes, "Mister, Mister Angier, did you think you were unique? <laughs> I played Faust." Yeah. <laughs> and then he comes out and like delivers some like Henry Fourth monologue. Right. That was pretty fucking great. It was great. I did love that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Hugh Jackman. There. I I don't even. I can't really pretend that I'm really, really well versed in all the roles that that True. he's played. But every time I've seen him on screen, I thought he was fan. I've, 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 I've been impressed with his performance. But I mean, this is a little bit different than playing, say, Wolverine, you know, right. uh, or the that Ringling Brothers movie that came out last year, or whatnot. I mean, th- those are really just the first things that come to my mind off the top of my head. And I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that he's done that he's been fantastic in, but. I can't remember any. That's just yeah. I, I, nothing come like, and I'm sure I'm like completely. I, there's got to be something I'm in. It's definitely not. What was that movie Swordfish he was in? It's oh, definitely God. not that one. That was yeah. terrible. No, no, Swordfish. Um, that'll be yeah. That'll be my number three. That's what we'll talk about. My my uh, right. <laughs> just to go ahead and have to watch that movie again. Uh, no. Um, but yeah, he just to go back to the the original thing. Yeah, Hugh Jackman, great and. Sometimes you just forget that he's not American and he was playing an American. Australian. Yeah. Yes. 
uh, and he was playing an American in this film, uh, which I guess it really also kind of touches on class and uh, the movie taking place in England. You know, and you're not belonging in this in this world. Um, one of the reasons why uh, Christian Bale's character really, really did not like him. But anyway, we're talking about the performances, and yes, I concur. Hugh Jackman, awesome. My favorite scene, I well, there's two standout scenes that he delivers. One is at the funeral whenever Borden shows up and he asks him, what night did you tie Borden? Yeah. And he's like, I, I don't know. And he's like, you don't know? Yeah. You don't know? You don't know. You don't know? And he just yells it out three times. Oh, that's just, oh, that was so great. Yep. That was just, he crushed that. Mm-hmm. And then... God, there's a scene. It's there's no actual dialogue, but the scene where he kind of drown is trying to like drown himself in the tub, like he's got his face submerged, and he just kind of pulls out and gasps for air, and is just cries. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just distraught at his wife's death. That was another kind of standout moment. And then, obviously, I think the end, the very end of the film, whenever he sort of reveals the cost that he's paid, the price that he has paid for his revenge. But even more, even more than the revenge is his desire to to show the audience, to get the audience to believe in something that stands above sort of the material reality, the the sort of concrete, brutish reality of the world. Like he just the look on their faces, mm-hmm. he describes just that is just such a great, great, great moment. Just yep. blows me away. Um, but we'll get back to the ending. Um, so moving on to Christian Bale, and I think it's actually kind of really funny because these two actors have played two of my favorite comic book characters, but I don't really care for either performance. I don't really care for Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, and I definitely did not care for Christian Bale as Batman or his Where Bruce Wayne. Yeah, that... <laughs> That was just trash. Even though I th- Christian Bale, to me, is, I think, one of the best working actors. It's not even correct to call him a working actor. He's one of the best actors, I think. This is one of his best roles, but I think he really... Let's see. My favorite role of his was what American Hustle. Okay. To me, that's his. That's where his, his like best performance ever. He should have won Best Actor that year, I thought. He was just phenomenal. When did he win? He won for the boxing movie, right? Um... Should I forget the name of the movie? Yeah, I can't. But, I can't yeah, remember whatever that whatever one. Whatever. Yeah, um, I think it was best supporting though. I don't think he got a best actor nod for that one. And didn't win anything, but I think if he probably won the award for um, just most potential damage one can do to their body in <laughs> uh, the Machinist. Right. Good lord. And then he, his next movie was Batman Begins, so he like yeah. goes from these extremes. Yeah. Of, Weighing probably like 150 pounds to weighing like 200 pounds, but yeah, his I respect his commitment to the physicality, and that you know that become that's part of becoming that character, and I think even in the movie you mentioned the boxing movie where he was the brother, he was also pretty yeah pretty skinny and mm-hmm. playing kind of like like a meth addict or something like that, but uh, Bale just was quite. I mean, he was. Very good as well. He had a really wide array of emotion too. He was mostly stoic throughout the film, but 
he did have some moments here and there. Like one of the standouts for me is whenever the the root double kind of turns on Angier and he pops up out of, so he's doing when, the transported man and then the professor aka Borden pops up at the end and he's like oh it's kind of like like he's surprised to be there and yeah. he's like oh do, don't be so hard on him he does try so very hard <laughs> there simply is too much magic my stage across the street the pentages <laughs> that was so good well, that was a great scene that's one of the highlights I think yeah um, yeah, Christian Bale. I mean, there's really nothing more that I can possibly say about him that hasn't already in terms of acting ability. The guy's crazy. Uh, really, really good. I liked his very, very working class English, like kind of London type accent that he was doing. You know, there wasn't anything, um, obviously it didn't, didn't come from money or nobility in any capacity, you know, like his... It was very, very uh, working class uh, accent. So I um, thought his performance was great. I'm not, you know, and it's not like when I saw the movie, I was trying to sniff out, like sniff out the twist. I, I hate doing that. I like watching a movie and just getting like, all right, take me on this journey. Even if I, you know, think there, there's going to be a magical twist or something at the end. When I saw it in the theater, I didn't really anticipate. I, I wasn't expecting it, but the Fallon thing was just, it was just a little, for me it was a little too easy not to see Christian Bale when I, when I watched I'm like that's Christian Bale's character. Still, that being said, I didn't know where where it was going to take going. Yeah, yeah where it was going to take it. But I'm like that Christian Bale's playing two roles in this film. Okay, well, we'll we'll you know and then I'm like well they're they're talking about doubles a lot so he's a double but again wasn't really trying to put together the the uh, the twist in it but. That was one thing that I just, when I watched it the first time, I was just a little distracted because I'm like, why is Christian Bale not talking when it's so obviously him? Interesting. And I, in the I, end, then I'm like, oh, well, that, that makes sense. I don't mind saying that the, the twist in this film caught me completely flat-footed. I had, I had no fucking clue. That's great. <laughs> I had no That's, fucking yeah, clue. Yeah, I, I, I prefer not knowing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I got the full impact, the full surprise mm-hmm. element of just bam with like a, a freight train hit me yeah. with that one which was oh it was such a amazing payoff it was a great payoff and the payoff is the, fantastic i'm trying to think there's some other key moments for borden's character that just and it's hard to even it's gonna be hard to separate out the performance the writing the acting the storytelling there's a couple of moments like I forget he's he's describing the knot that he ties. He's like the Langford double will hold yeah. tighter. Yeah, it's like, it's not, and then Michael Caine's like it's not a wet knot. You know? <laughs> um, what else? Uh, the for me and I mean that 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 was a great you know exchange between those two. Really, just having Christian Bale talk in English and uh, his with you know like more of a traditional accent of his, and then Michael Caine just talking like Michael Caine <laughs> is great. Um, for me, what I loved was the exchange or the, the, the exchanges he would have with, with his wife, as far as, you know, I love you not today or today you mean it, you know, like I loved those exchanges. Uh, I thought that was, that was, that was good. And, you know, when you talk about kind of like the, the, the sacrificing, what they're sacrificing for their craft, uh, the, 
because some you know you could you could see i mean the the weight in uh her performance i thought i mean i know we're talking a little bit more about christian bale but just the 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 relationship that those two had i I thought was fantastic and those were just some of my favorite moments of christian bale's were his exchanges uh with with her Another one of his most powerful scenes, I think, maybe, oh, I don't know, it's hard to say if this is the most powerful, but at the end when he is saying goodbye to Fallon, mm-hmm. and you just know that and he's like, you know, I should have let him keep his trick. You, you got to go on and live for both of us now. That's just, yeah. the weight there is just so heavy. Like I could, I could feel it, like it was tugging on my tear ducts at that point, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. It was definitely, that was super powerful kind of punch to the gut yep. like that dramatic weight of that scene and he really kills it. and it's funny earlier you mentioned getting the ball rolling because that's kind of a frequent <laughs> cutaway is this borden has this ball that he always sort of utilizes for these disappearing acts and he the borden that's the version that's gonna go be i guess uh, executed he tosses the other ball to quote unquote fallon but wow, that scene is just gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. I think in many yeah. regard. But um, I guess m- moving on. So we have some interesting cameos in this film. Maybe some of the most interesting ever, <laughs> because we have Andy Circus. Yep, playing Ale or Ali. I'm not sure how that's pronounced exactly. <laughs> Ali, Ale. I hear like both of those. Yeah. Um, but he's got a great little role, and some quality screen time and interactions with you jackman whenever so jackman rolls up to i guess so they're in colorado springs later on in the film and there's an electrified fence and angier approaches it and gets shocked by it and along comes andy circus wielding a fucking not (laughs) in motion capture (laughs) right The, the literal guy yeah holding a double barrel shotgun chastising him for not for not reading his sign that said electrified what i love and just to talk a little bit about andy circus there for a second is even when he's playing himself he's still like heightened right i mean he's got like this really weird kind of turn of the century like accent that he really does you know that that he's using and whenever he's on camera as himself he's his performance is heightened i mean I, I don't know if I don't know if like theatrical like like stage is really what I mean like in, in his performance I don't know if he's like more of like a stage actor but it, it, it's so funny because I know when I see when I see him I'm like okay what am I gonna get you know there, there's gonna be something he's just a little bit extra when right? when he's on camera there's something off kilter about him in like a I don't know, like a kooky, not a kooky way. That's a shitty way to describe it. But it's like, it's something like there's something off about the guy. Like you can tell he's probably a little bit weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's in the, I think in the eyes, something Mm -hmm. about his eyes in particular, because it's funny that you mentioned that too, because when he was in um, Black Panther, most recently he plays Claw as kind of the villain, which is kind of actually another little bit part that he just crushes. Mm -hmm. Um, he was kind of one of the highlights of of that movie overall in terms of the acting, even though he was kind of this villain character, but he, he really pulled it off. Well, I'm probably one of two people, um, in the known universe that haven't seen that movie yet. The other person being my wife. We, 
with the with baby haven't gone out to the theater really yet so i haven't seen black panther yet but like i said probably the only person that hasn't but yeah like any circus um everything just just a shit even when he was in what was it king kong you know um like around the same time that this movie came out he was and just 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 a little just a little out there and then obviously david bowie the, holy shit the david bowie which also blew me away when i saw david bowie stride across so it's like this such a dramatic scene right because mm-hmm. um board i'm not borden but angier is finally going to meet tesla who supposedly is the cipher that tied like is the the key to Borden's transported man trick. So it's this incredible reveal. And all of a sudden he walks through like these electrical currents, currents that are (laughs) kind of flittering through and it's fucking David Bowie. Yeah. Holy shit. As Tesla, which what amazing casting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's funny. I read, or actually rather I heard an interview with Christopher Nolan. He's like a huge, huge Bowie fan, of course, as, as am I. And right around this time, actually, it's funny that this is kind of where I really got deep into Bowie right around this time because he popped up in this movie randomly. And then he had popped up in like six or seven things that I was consuming at the time. Right. I think it was like even Rock Band or something. Like there was a couple of David Bowie songs on Rock Band that had come out at the time. And there was a episode of Flight of the Concords around this time where... Jermaine Clement dresses up as Ziggy Stardust and all this shit. (laughs) There was, yeah, so it was, he was the episode of extras where David Bowie plays himself. No, but I'm going to have to go back and watch that. You have to see that. That might be (laughs) my favorite, my favorite thing that David Bowie has ever done is play himself, uh, acting opposite of Ricky Gervais. Nice. That's funny. There's another, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because, um, there's that life's short, life's too short or, Something like that. Yeah, something like that with uh with, with Ward Davis. Davis. And they have um fucking Liam Neeson come on. Oh Play- that's the- Liam Neeson playing himself. Yeah. But he's like, he wants to do improvisational comedy and he's like, yeah. let's do some improvisational comedy now. No. <laughs> Which was great. As I said, I have full blown AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just so good. Oh. Uh, but yes, back back to the prestige. Yes. yes. <laughs> Okay, so let's see. Who else do we got? We got, of course, Michael Caine. He likes to talk through his teeth. Mm-hmm. I like how he chastises uh, Angier for, at the beginning of the film, whenever they're doing a run-through of the the water tank escape trick, um, he kisses Piper Parabu's right. leg. And he's like, if I can see you doing that, then the blokes at the end of Roach three and four can shoot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anything, anything with Michael Caine is... Just gold. The guy, shit. I mean, he was able to make his scenes in Jaws four entertaining. I mean, <laughs> anything that like when he's on camera, it, it's it, it, it's it's just it's gold. It, it just it's so good. Um, but yeah, so he was fantastic. When you mentioned cameos, one of my favorite cameos in the film is by like a like kind of a very very well respected magician in like kind of like card trick uh ricky J. yeah and i don't think ricky J says anything and i don't no, even know if he has any lines in the movie uh I, I don't recall him saying anything you just see him kind of like walking around the 
the, the water tank, you know, and just kind of using his hands or whatnot. But I, I love that cameo because if you haven't ever seen some of his magic, it, it he does some really freaking cool card tricks. Uh, I love Ricky J. So I thought that was just a really interesting cameo. Yeah, I, I had no recognition of him, but I did read that he was actually, he kind of taught Bale and Jackman there's sort of slight the sleight of hand stuff that they do do. Oh, interesting. In the film, um, he kind of taught them to, and coached them on their technique for that sort of stuff. Awesome. Maybe that was his uh, his way of getting into the movie. He's like, yeah, like uh, I'll do that as long as I get a little cameo. We have uh, let's see, moving down the list of actors, we have Piper Parabo as Julia, the wife, the dead wife of mm-hmm. Angier, or you know she winds up dead just a little tiny little role it's funny she rose to fame from what it was um coyote ugly coyote ugly right and then i don't know what she and then this film and that's like the two movies that i recognize her and i know we can do this with like imdb like at our fingertips but for me i find i have a lot more fun not knowing (laughs) right i mean we don't need to go down her yeah we need to look at her resume Versus someone like, I think Rebecca Hall is someone that I think has cropped up in quite yeah. a few different yeah. films. And it's funny, too, actually, the the amount of superhero characters we have in this, or actors that actually have play, portrayed superheroes. Oh, yeah, Scarlett kind of Johansson, Utterly right? ridiculous. Yeah. Even Rebecca Hall, I think, was actually in an Iron Man film. Oh, really? Yeah. But I most notably recall Rebecca Hall from the movie um the town yeah she was great with ben affleck which she was fantastic in god that's such a like underrated film i feel oh god what else she was in some um she was in frost v nixon as well she looked she was gorgeous in that movie as um david frost sort of girlfriend Mm -hmm. i forget the uh, character's name but uh, she was stunning stunning in that movie i haven't i haven't seen that one it's really, it's quite good. Um, I mean, it won a bunch of Oscars, as I recall, right? But it's quite good, you know, of course, for like a Ron Howard type of film. You know what I mean? It's not going to be something super, super risky, but it's a really solid, I think, film. Are you... It doesn't take a whole lot of risk, but I think what is cool about that movie is that it takes, it takes, it frames this battle between Frost and Nixon as like a boxing match. Oh, okay. And that's kind of the frame through which they kind of display it even from like the style of like right. they're getting ready in their different corners and shit so oh that's cool but i interrupted you what were you gonna say no i forget i think you mentioned some about ron howard and saying that he doesn't take risks and i you say he doesn't take risks and i throw willow at him. <laughs> um, also with warwick davis right uh, then we have scarlett johansson as olivia winscombe i think she was you know she was good Hard to really... I mean, she was pretty good. She didn't have a lot of range, I think. Yeah, I mean... I'm, there wasn't a lot to chew on I, I'm not, for her. I'm, I really don't want to sound like a Scarlett Johansson hater by any means, but I didn't really think that she brought anything to the table. I thought she was serviceable, yeah. I, you know? I, but I didn't feel that that there was something inherently special about her performance that was intriguing. But, you know, she she did a job. You know, she, she was on stage and she, (laughs) she didn't embarrass herself. So props to her, I guess. But I I thought she was quite good. Actually, her standout moment was whenever she is 
talking to Borden towards the end of the film, and it's after um, Sarah, Borden's wife, has killed herself, and she mentions that she was going to tell tell her something about him mm-hmm. and that it how he could be in any in this that restaurant with any woman right and sort of what else um so that that scene for me and like how angier and borden sort of belong to one another so mm-hmm. so she, she's sort of leaving him she's been she's slept with both men she's had a relationship with both men and now she's sort of like Oh, you guys! You guys deserve each other. I mean, they're Eskimo probably brothers, in the end, which they kind of, they <laughs> honestly <laughs> they definitely deserve each other. Which actually kind of brings to mind. I hate to interject this now, but I think it's a good time to bring it up. Is I f- I feel like there's a certain part of you that naturally wants to identify with Borden's character over Angier, but they're both really shitty people yeah so in the end you know yeah i mean um now that you bring that bring that up it's it's an interesting thing because in the beginning of the film i think you feel that maybe you're tracking hugh jackman's character as your your protagonist because of the fact that borden was really accountable or should have been like he didn't really take any accountability for the the death of angier's wife so it kind of like, I mean, that's really what sets this whole chain of emotions up. So you kind of look at as Borden as the antagonist to Angier. But the more we really learn about Angier, the the less we really like him. So we do kind of track Borden. And then really the more we learn about Borden, we, we really don't really identify. So it's it's an interesting take on who you're your your protagonist is because at the end, I mean, they they both do deserve each other. They're both pretty terrible, and the 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 rivalry that just essentially the obsession of their rivalry is what is both their undoing and you know their yeah. But I don't know if you were going somewhere. I just uh, I don't know. I'm just was bringing up this question because it came to mind at the time. Just it's. Although I would say, in Borden's defense, he purposefully did not. There was no intent for him to harm Rebecca, right, or Julia's part. Right. Well, there wasn't an intent to hurt, but the and the, we don't even know which. I mean, there's two Bordens as well. It's like you right. can't really blame. I mean, you know what I mean. So yeah, it was the, uh, yeah. I mean. W- the problem I feel is that so much of the, I mean, it wouldn't have made it nearly as in, intriguing of a film if they would just wouldn't have went out for like a fucking cup of coffee. Yeah, right. You Very know, exactly. like the he, so much of their problems could have been resolved. Like obviously, he's like, you don't know, <laughs> you don't you know, like, uh, and then obviously he shoots off Borden's fingers, and then Borden, you know, chops off his brother's fingers as well, but. Borden comes back, and that—that's, I guess, one of the, the issues that I that I have is Borden came back to sabotage Angier's transporter, like, but after, but th- th- there was Angier was raised the stakes it, because it, he it, shoots it, his fingers. It was, but it was the bird that. So, oh yeah, you're okay, and that's and that's where, um, 
that I had the like board and felt like we're good. We're good. Like, because I went ahead and sabotaged your trick, but you, because you sabotaged my trick, but it's like, fool, he sabotaged your trick because you fucking killed his, his wife and you're not taking any accountability. And you could, you could, you could flip the script and say, well, he came to the funeral and said, I just want to pay my respects. Eh, Maybe in a public setting wasn't really the best course of action for him to, to do that. True. But, but damn, it made for a great scene. It makes for a great <laughs> scene. That's just it. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, it, the, the problem that I had was, was just the, I, I, as I was watching this, the way that we kind of flip it and like, okay, now we can be a little bit more sympathetic to, uh, Borden's character is the fact that there, there was a, it's almost kind of like a throwaway, uh, line where he said, that he's like, uh, like what I just said, basically he's like, we're even now. And I'm like, well, no, you know, like that's, that's not, that's not how it works. The stakes of death and a loss of a finger aren't, aren't equal, especially where, you know, like the, the death of, of, of Piper Parabu's character was something that really messed with him. So him sabotaging and shooting, shooting your fingers off. It doesn't, for me, it, there was just there was a problem with with that scene construction, but I I see really holding any favoritism toward Angier's character when he shoots himself, you know, like uh, when the, the the double, if you will, you know, like so just the 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 journey the, like the the shifting of who your protagonist versus who the antagonist is i mean it's it's a very very fine i don't even know if it's a fine line i don't i don't know what line there is in it but it's pretty in, maybe it's just an indistinguishable uh there there are uh, the pros and cons and maybe that's again why it works the that they deserve each other because they're both pretty terrible before we move on to writing there's just a couple of other quick actors that I just want to mention just super briefly just because they're kind of I think stand out for me just just bit roles um so the judge Daniel was played by Daniel Davis he was the butler in what was that Fran Drescher show the nanny the nanny he was the butler but he also more importantly for me he was Dr. Moriarty in Star Trek the Next Generation Mm. You remember the character from, uh, so Picard would always go on the holodeck with this Sherlock Holmes thing. And so Moriarty became, a, he was a, you know, a recurring character two or three times minimum throughout the run of, of TNG. So I thought that was a neat little cameo, but mm-hmm. also um, Roger Rees yeah. as Owens. Yeah, Robin from, uh, from Cheers. Uh, R.I.P., by the way, he died a couple of years ago. Oh, damn, I didn't know that. He was also the Sheriff of Rottingham. Yes, yes, yep. Mm-hmm. I love Roger He Reese. did to kill the king's dad. <laughs> he dared to kill the king's dad. <laughs> yeah, no, fantastic, fantastic actor. Uh, but yeah, one of the, uh, one of his earlier roles, as far as what one of his earlier roles that I know of anyway, is yeah. he played the recurring character of Robin on, um, on Cheers. Yeah. Uh, Shit, I can't remember who he dated. I just remember. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if it was Diane or. Yeah, but he was great. Kirstie he, Alley. Yeah. Um, pro- well, who di- who dated? 
Frazier. I think that was Diane. So I think I think he I think he was Diane's boyfriend or husband. I can't remember what it was. I just remember him being on there. But anyway, yeah, Roger Reese. Yeah, those two roles. I think we have we have to mention just because. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was gonna bring. I was gonna mention Roger Reese anyway, just because I lo- I, oh, I nice. love that guy. All right. So moving on to writing, and I guess I should even mention that this film was based on a novel mm-hmm. by I believe it's Christopher Priest. Yes, and kind of a departure, I believe, from the novel, except for maybe one portion i think it's told there's a shift they're shifting narrators in the book i've not read the book okay have you have you even no looked in the book at all no i know i know that it was based on a novel but i couldn't tell you anything other than the fact that it's based on the novel of the same name the prestige okay um the screenwriter we have um his christopher nolan's frequent collaborator his brother jonathan mm-hmm. or jonah previously it's funny i having watched Memento, where he was listed as Jonah, and now he's Jonathan. Was he listed as Jonah in there? Yeah. Wow. He even, uh, he's listed as a production assistant on Memento as well, mm-hmm. which I thought was really funny. But, I mean, obviously, they the two have worked on just about every yeah. single mm-hmm. film together, but I think he really has garnered distinction with Westworld in particular, but... I feel like he was on another network show. He was. It's like I, Criminal Minds. I don't recall, but I know I know that he he was involved in another show, but I can't recall off the top of my head. But yeah, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to look it up. Oh, it's Person of Interest. Person, Person of Interest. Interest. Okay. Yep. Which I've not actually watched, but I've he- I've heard good things about. Yeah, I, I've heard good things from my mother. Um, and generally speaking, if it's a show that my mom recommends to me, no disrespect, <laughs> mom, I, I generally go, running out to I go the other direction. She's like, this is us. You have to watch that. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. So knowing what I'm not going to see. <laughs> right. But again, I've heard amazing things about this is us, so I'm not going to hate on the show. I just, anyway, I love you, mom. I do. I love you, mom. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a total snob. It's like if it comes on network TV, I'm it's I'm probably not going to watch that shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even if it's on like basic cable, I like I'll barely There's a couple of shows that I finally have like relented. Like I've I'm HBO all the way when yeah. it comes to TV for the most part. Maybe a Showtime one here and there, but I mean I mean other yeah, other cable channels have some quality program but when it comes to network television the the caliber of the writing right now there's just been such a shift and i I don't think it makes you a snob at all it's just the the writing is different because you're not writing for the act break you're not writing for that commercial breaks and shit so because you're that's what that's what television writing is you know you're you're you you gotta you gotta sell batteries and you gotta sell coca-cola and television, like cable television, they, they, they pay for it in a different way, you know, with the advertising within the show in some capacity. But they, the, the idea of the act break is just a little bit different. Now, of course, I mean, there are still commercial break cable shows that are fantastic. I mean, Breaking Bad is, you know, a classic example of something that came out in the, the middle 2000s that was really, really top-notch and I, I guess that, that still did uh, come out post writer strike, but I mean, your your regular 
television program I just don't think is really that strong. And this is coming from somebody that I, I watch freaking Gotham and I know it's not good. <laughs> I know it's not good, but I still watch it. See, I, I won't even, I won't even fucking watch any. It's like, <laughs> eh, I, 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 I am a snob. I'm, yeah. I'm going to own it. I'm a total snob. I won't fucking touch mm-hmm. network, the four networks or five or whatever. Not, not going to do it. Not, wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> a little Dana Carvey. I love it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so Chris, uh, Jonathan Nolan collaborated with Christopher on this adaptation mm-hmm. of the book, which I think is a very creative take on the book from what I've heard. And I think maybe not in terms of the diet, like while there is, are some moments of dialogue that are quite fascinating to me overall, that maybe not, that might not be the standout part of the screenplay. I think it's just the structure of the story itself. Yeah. No, I would, I would agree. The, the structure of the story, I mean, that's still screenplay, you know I mean? It's still the, but the, 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 the story structure and the, the story itself is what is captivating about the screenplay. I mean, there, there's still great bits of dialogue within it, but the, um, I don't even know if I, if I just went on my own little tangent. I was just thinking about the screenplay. I don't even know if I'm, uh, what you got lost again. I don't even know what you were talking about, <laughs> but, uh, I love, I love this screenplay in, in its structure. Right. It's really, really compelling and interesting and it, Still goes with your thus far your your continuing trend of, for the most part of non-linear, you know. So that's what? true. I forgot. About, I didn't even think about that. I didn't make that connection. Well, Blade Runner is sort of fairly straightforward, right? Okay. So all right. But Amores Perros definitely. Yeah. Was I think it's probably uh, in terms and of that, and we were going to talk about Memento. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. So uh, it's all running together. Yeah, little little uh, inside. Uh, so last night. I get a I get a text from Cooper <laughs> saying, "Hey, have you seen Memento?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I just watched it again." He's like, "Because I'm thinking about doing the Prestige." Uh, and I'm like, "Oh, all right, cool. Yeah, I'll go ahead and watch that." And then he drops like, "Yeah, so like the you you made another like connection uh, Memento thing that was really fascinating." Oh yeah. Uh, and I forgot what you what you said, but I'm like, "All right, so we're still doing the Prestige." And he's like, "Yep." <laughs> I'm like, "All right, rock and roll." But uh, no, uh, so but yeah, like non-linear. Another little call, uh, something that we, when you mentioned your summary, there was a little nod to even the vanishing in this because we had a, um, a Borden, a Fallon was buried alive more or less. So we had a, oh, some, yeah. so I, we, so we had somebody else buried alive. It's funny that you mentioned that too, because on my Blu-ray, there is a preview that's this fucking Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds film where he's buried alive that's and funny. it's sort of this stupid like he's got a phone and a lighter and a knife well, and yeah. that's all he have and he's like even it's very reminiscent because he's like lighting has the lighter on and he's mm-hmm. in the coffin it was very reminiscent what was that, was that movie called Vanishing. buried what was that uh, called I might even I think it might be right it might be yeah. right I, I remember when that movie came you know came out I'm like I'm not gonna watch this movie I'm gonna watch you know uh, watch the vanishing. I'm sure it's better than whatever this is. But again, I've actually heard good things from my sister who has a major like Ryan Reynolds crush that <laughs> that movie was good. I don't know. I don't know. Gotcha. Uh, so I will, I will go into the little bit of trivia that I was discussing with Memento in particular. It, yes. it was because I think it does sort of, it'll kind of tease a little bit 
another film that we're gonna, my number one film, mm-hmm. The Thin Red Line. That's yeah. That's but it all, I guess it actually, it's funny too. Actually, I know it ties back to Blade Runner as well. So it mm-hmm. fits in this whole soup of my kind of film world is okay. So Christopher Nolan very much inspired by, or the score for Memento was inspired by Vangelis. <laughs> yeah. That's who, what it was. That's what you had said. Yeah. Vangelis' work in Blade Runner, but I think also he's just a huge Vangelis fan, I think, in general, because he mentions the soundtrack to Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. I think Vangelis did that as well, which I think ultimately got him the job doing Blade Runner, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I've got my chron- chronology off. But um, the other inspiration for that score was uh, Hans Zimmer in The Thin Red Line, which again will be my number one film mm-hmm. that we're going to re- review at some point in the future. Yeah, so Cooper's like, yeah, fuck that. I'm going to go ahead and do The Prestige, <laughs> you know. But uh, it's awesome. But which, having watched Memento and Prestige in such close proximity, I did notice, for one, Memento's score is fantastic and really helps kind of ground the emotion of the film. Mm-hmm. It's very reminiscent of this score as well. Like I see, I see a lot of similarities. Um, there's not a lot of, you know what I mean. There's not a lot of contemporary music. It's all sort of score, yeah. Ultimately, until the very sort of end of the film, the climax, where the amazing Tom York track "Analyze" comes on. Which, oh man, of course I love that shit. That was great. <laughs> which also kind of ties back to, I kind of feel like. Maybe I'm the third, I'm like the bastard Nolan child that they don't know about or something. Because these guys, like, from their visual style, the themes that they tackle, the music that they go after, like, these are things that I, that have, you know, vast appeal to me. So to go back to Memento, Christopher Nolan had originally wanted to use Paranoid Android to close out Memento. But he couldn't get the rights. It was going to be too expensive and raise the budget too much. So he relented and actually had a David Bowie song play at the end of that film. And then, obviously, later on, we have Tom York's Analyze mm-hmm. popping up as the clima- at the climax of this film at the very end, which is a fucking amazingly dark, depressing song, which I think fits the, it fits the themes of this film overall so well. Mm-hmm highly recommend checking out that track from Tom York's it's uh the eraser mm-hmm. album which overall is a great album too from his solo career um and then go moving forward to Westworld too so we have Jonathan Nolan I mean they use five or three or four different radiohead yeah. songs for season 1 of Westworld mm-hmm. so it's like I feel like I'm the third bro- like these guys are they're my family, you know what I mean, in some way. Like, there's because some, you all like Tom York? <laughs> we all like the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think if you look at Christopher Nolan's work in general, I mean, he's very much like Kubrick, I think, is an obvious influence. He's a big Terrence Malick fan. Probably a bigger Terrence Malick fan than I am, but nevertheless, obviously, with The Thin Red Line being my you know, favorite movie of all time, I think the point stands, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, um back to the writing of this particular screenplay i think that there's an there's an element of autobiography autobiography to this that really i think takes the writing and the structure to another level for these guys in the sense that 
in many ways, to me, the overall theme of the film itself is that the only way to escape sort of the ground, the hard material world that we exist in is by being creative, is by fully devoting yourself to your craft of storytelling. And I think that the the three-act structure element of screenwriting in general and the three-act structure of this illusion, you know what I mean? There's There's a definite relationship there, I think, in Christopher Nolan's mind about what he's trying to communicate mm-hmm. as an artist. You know what I mean? Like, this, this truly is the only way you can achieve some kind of immortality in sort of the Greek sense of, like, creating something, like having a legacy mm-hmm. that l- may live on beyond your years. So yeah, um, I was. There's another part of that I think that plays a role. It's the relationship between Jonathan and Christopher Nolan themselves being brothers and having that very collaborative relationship. Obviously, this is you know the third, third or fourth movie they've worked on together. So I think it lent itself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There was there was sort of a metaphor for the two Borden and Fallon. Right. You know what I mean? And that relationship and how easy that was for them to manage. And so I I think these sort of things seep into the screenplay itself and the film itself, ultimately. But another element, I think, of this sort of autobiographical theme about this film is whenever Borden is having a conversation, it's early on in the film, and let's see, it's... Julia's there, Angier is there, and Cutter are all there, and uh, Borden is just railing about the magician they're working for, which is, what's his name, Ricky J? Ricky J. I forget. I don't, I don't, I don't recall his character's name. I forget that. his character's name, too, at the moment, but um, he's sort of railing. He's like, you know, he's relying on these second-hand, these second-rate tricks, blah, 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 and Huge Jackman's like, ah, oh, they're old favorites, you know, blah, 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 and yeah. he's like, no. A real magician wants to create something new that people are going to scratch their heads over. Yep. And I think for me, that is Nolan coming out. He's saying, yeah, I'm, I want to craft a story that is going to have people scratching their heads over. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He, wants to, he doesn't want to tell the same old tired narratives. He wants to really challenge the audience yeah. and make the audience think. Which I thought, I, which is maybe another reason why I so kind of more identify with... Borden as he's you know he has that picture early on of like he's completely in his role as as an illusionist mm-hmm. magician he's committed to his to that role and he's willing to do whatever it takes to create something something really really special yeah to grab the audience and just blow their minds mm-hmm. which kind of reminds me too um it's it's funny so I had done a uh, an episode of a couple of weeks ago, it was a, and I just launched it, I think last week, a review of Dune. And I don't know if you've seen Jodorowsky's Dune or have any familiarity with who Jodorowsky is. No. Or anything. Okay. So Jodorowsky is a Chilean filmmaker that was in the process of making this really crazy version of Dune. It was going to have like Salvador Dali and um, fucking, what's his name from? Oh, Orson Welles. Okay. It's just going to be wild, right? (laughs) 
and he was like describing he's like what I the movie that I want to make is essentially I want to make people have the experience of having taken LSD <laughs> just from watching this movie without actually taking LSD and to me that's what it's all about when it comes to filmmaking I that's what I that's the kind of visceral experience I want my audience to have mm-hmm. so I could very much relate to this Borden rant about creating something new and fresh and innovative, mm-hmm. even in a field like magic, which doesn't quite have the same narrative to it. But I mean, it's still, I think it, you could say that it's storytelling. It's a type of storytelling. Yeah. Especially in the frame of this three act structure, this pledge, turn, and prestige. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so one, uh, I mean, kind of, I, I wanted to say something without, I was just going to let you kind of finish, but <laughs> Rand, when, when you had mentioned as far as uh, giving, you know, one of the things that Borden was, and what you had, uh, his ability is, and they kind of they kind of turned this on uh, Angier, is Borden was always re- able to get his hands dirty, and that's a phrase that they kind of use a couple times in the movie. Right. You know, he's willing to do whatever it takes, what at what all, you know, at all costs doesn't, you know, the danger isn't a concern. Right. Because one of the first things he even says is, you know, like like a bullet catch, you know, and it's like, no, it's too dangerous. And then later on, you have um, Michael Caine make a comment to. Hugh Jack uh, Angier saying that, you know, like you're the problem is, you know, you're can't you're, you're afraid to get your hands dirty. you have to get your hands dirty or something like that and then later on the movie borden says oh you're you're, you're, <laughs> you're ready to get your hands dirty you're now ready, you're ready to get your hands dirty now you know and that that's just it is uh that the you have to raise the stakes you know the stakes have to be higher you have to get your hands dirty and then obviously uh Angier was never ever really able prepared to do that and when when, Until he is, and, and then he really is. Yeah, and then it's, it's too late. He's sealed his own fate at that point. Or, I mean, he'd already sealed his own fate because at that point now he's not even, he's a copy. The dramatic irony, too, now that you really mentioned that, about that scene, too, about Cutter saying, no, all it takes is some, you know, asshole yep. to stick a real bullet in mm-hmm. there. And then and then a couple of scenes later we have... You Jackman doing that very thing. Yep. I mean, there's foreshadow after foreshadow. I mean, even the like the birds thing is like, well, where's his what about his brother? And then he's like, Oh, you know, like Oh, he, you're a very smart lad, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, just foreshadowing all throughout the film. I mean, there's little little kind of like nods uh to the you know, to the the, the little subtle like nods to the audience. Some of the dialogue that I really enjoyed, so it was whenever Angier and Borden go to observe the Chinese magician with the mm-hmm. fishbowl because Cutter's like, you guys got to go see this fishbowl, fishbowl trick. If you can figure it out, I'll get you, you know, in front of this theatrical agent and you'll be able to, you know, you'll have an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. So they go observe and Borden immediately spots what the trick is, which is that the guy's been carrying the fucking giant fishbowl between his thighs this whole time. And he wears this like huge kind of silk robe that obscures it. But that's his whole kind of thing. Is he? And then outside of his act, he just pretends to be this kind of crippled mm-hmm. old man. But he's he's faking it. Yep. That's the that's the act. That's the trick. Yep. Is that he's not some old man. He's a strong motherfucker. Yeah. Know, who can hold this giant? Can you imagine like a full fish? Like how the ah? Uh, can't even imagine. Yeah. How he would have really literally rigged that thing up in right. real life. 
but it, it's kind of very obvious when you sort of watch it, I think, with the way he shimmers that. Mm-hmm. He's got his, like, whatever robe over that table or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we were talking about, like, uh, screenplay. Like, uh, one of the lines, like, is when um, Borden is showing, like, the coin. He's like, never show anyone. Uh, they'll beg for it. You know, they'll, they'll flatter you. But as soon as they... They know it. You'll, you'll, you're, you're nothing, nothing to them. You're nothing yeah. to them. I love that. I love that bit. The secret impresses no one. Yeah. The trick you use it for is everything. Mm-hmm. They have a. Uh, there's another great on the conversation that they have though as well after Borden has described what the trick was to Angier. He's kind of he's t- kind of describing. He's like, look at him. It's this is total devotion to his art, lots of self-sacrifice. And he's just like Mm -hmm. loving that this guy is willing to go to these lengths. And then he kind of says, one of my favorite, favorite pieces of dialogue from the film. And even just acting too is he kind of describes total devotion to your art as being the only way to escape all of this. And then he pounds his fist Mm -hmm. on the brick wall. And that was again, what I was going, I mentioned earlier about this like this is the only way to escape this material grounded like we are this organic substance that is going to perish our only opportunity to escape the, our own mortality is to create a story or to do something to have a legacy to have our name mm-hmm. continue on after us mm-hmm. and just the way that he literally kind of cements that which is yep. it was a great acting choice yeah. on Bale's behalf just to like that really drove it home mm-hmm. for me yeah Okay, it's funny. My next kind of quote was that very quote about the secret. Oh, <laughs> the yeah. secret is everything, mm-hmm. or the the secret impresses no one. The trick you use it for. That was so great. Um, another little moment that was I quite enjoyed was whenever Borden is in the jail and the uh, he ends up tricking the guard and actually ends he winds up shackled to the table. Yeah, and he tries to get up and walk, and then he's shackled. That was so great because he kind of like plays it off like he's like uh, he's doing like the ball trick. Yeah, and, and then, then he fumbles it, and then he fumbles it <laughs> as misdirection. But they're like the one of the things that's fascinating, or one of the things that I think is just really, really good is um where you, you get a little bit of insight in who these characters are and, you know, they're a little bit more than just, you know, caricatures. But the, the quote that you said about um, Borden as far as, you know, like uh, being able to escape, what what we know about Angier's character is that he's obsessive. You know, he, he needs to get to the bottom of whatever Borden is doing. And then when... I can't remember if he says, uh, if he says it to... I don't think he says it to Tesla. I think he says it to um, Andy Circus, which is like, if you understand my obsession, then you then then you know you won't change my mind, right? Like, yeah. and that's just that's just it. Like, he is so consumed with whatever is obsessed. Like, nothing. No, he he has to know, like, like yeah. I mean, just I I I just you understand who Angier's character is with that little with that little bit of dialogue. Whenever Angier goes to, and he sees the new transported man trick that Borden has come up with, and he's kind of blown away, and he goes to talk to. It was funny too because the way they describe it too is like 
the trick on stage when he first did it, it was so understated and like, there was no reaction because no one really grasped what the fuck had just yeah. happened. Yeah. But it, except Angier was like, holy shit, like his mind was blown. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to tell, have the conversation with Cutter, who's like, oh my God, I I just saw the most amazing trick I've ever seen in my life. And then Cutter's like, oh, he he's, the only way I knew to do this is to use a double. It's the only way, but Angier won't take that for an, he yeah. won't take that for an answer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which ultimately becomes his, becomes his downfall that yeah. he, and and I think that's another theme from this film that just I I love and it just strikes me so hard is that people are always like they don't want the truth we want this fantasy yeah yep especially in um you know what I'm I'm taking this from a very kind of nihilistic philosophical position of there being like a very like hard materialist type viewpoint of there is nothing outside of the material there is no spiritual realm there is no fantasy there it's all just cold hard you live you die that's it the world is brutal mm-hmm. it's solid all the way to the core and ah oh, that just that through line i think runs through this film mm-hmm. so powerfully and that's kind of the first moment where we glimpse at this through angier's perspective he did not want the simple kind of disappointing truth about yeah. the world that it was it was a simple double. Yep. He wanted to believe in something more, more special and something unique, something extra, something supernatural mm-hmm. to explain this very obviously. When you think about it, <laughs> what other method could he have used? Like yeah. Cutter is absolutely right. Yep. You know what I mean? He's sort of using the very logical Occam's razor sort of approach mm-hmm. to figuring out what's going on. But yet, Angier just can't come to terms with that materialist worldview. Yeah. And I think that theme itself, too, like the the time period this takes place in, is one where it's sort of the turn of the century. There is, you know what I mean? The supernatural is on the wane. Logic and science and experimentation are the future. Mm-hmm. This very, it's a move towards from the supernatural to the rational world. To modern into fully full on modernity, yeah. From a philosophical standpoint, I over, love the time over what had come yeah. before, and so I think that's very much at play in this theme. And I think again with the Borden talking about how total devotion to your art being the only way to escape that. Mm-hmm. That to me is what just takes this film thematically into another str- stratosphere, and I just identify with that like so much. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I get that. I get that. Uh, what I think, what I, what I was saying is, I love the, 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 the choice to use this time period, especially when you had what was going on with, with Tesla and Edison and to have them kind of characters within, within this film. Because, I mean, you had... It would have been a different, slightly different touch if they would have made, like, Angier and Borden kind of like a, a student-teacher aspect kind of like how Edison was kind of like a, a teacher to Tesla, but um, very, really, really nice, nice touch to bridge, uh, bridge what was going on and kind of use that with this film. It's funny that you mentioned that too, because I don't know, that just brought to mind a, a really, to me, funny scene was whenever Angier is with Tesla and they place the top hat in the machine and mm-hmm. the electricity strikes it and nothing happens. And Tesla just doesn't say, he doesn't say a word or move. Mm-hmm. He just stands there. 
and then they kind of walk off. Yeah. And he's just standing there stoically. I thought that was that was fucking hilarious to me. Yeah. Anything else that you would, would want to highlight out of the uh, writing or, I don't know, I, I sort of broke out into themes, but I mean, it's again, it's hard to desegregate all of that the, with the acting and the writing. You know what I mean? There's so much interplay um, between theme and writing and acting. Like It all kind of works hand in hand. Yeah, the the magic of this movie is in the in the prestige, right? I mean, that's you you you've got you know like it, it's one thing you know to make something disappear, but the prestige you have to bring it back, right? That's like the the final act. So in this case, the final act of the film is well, you you learn you you, you learn um, everything as far as about Borden, as far as like oh he had a a twin or a brother or something like that. But the final act, even like the, the final where, um, how we, how we transition to it, where Angier thinks that he's finally got, gotten over, you know, like he, he's gotten one over this superior, uh, magician. And just that, that final, the final 10, 15 minutes of the movie is just, is in, in the structure and the way that they, they kind of, uh, move things around, I think is really, really nice. And that's, for me, is what makes this movie more than a good movie, but a really, really good movie. Yeah, that that ending. You're right. The prestige of this film is mm-hmm. just wow. Yeah, just hammers it home so well. The just the the sacrifice of these two guys and the lengths that they were willing to go. And oh man, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about you, Jackman delivering those lines about don't you see where you are don't you Mm -hmm. don't you see what this cost me and uh, i mean look at me i'm getting goosebumps (laughs) fucking i'm literally getting fucking goosebumps Mm -hmm. of him describing it and then we see all of the tanks filled with all of the copies of angier and you just realize holy shit yeah (laughs) just the emotional weight of that that he was that devoted to getting revenge. But no, it's, I guess he undercuts that actually because, you know, Borden's kind of saying, oh, you, you did all this, you sacrificed this, but it was all for nothing because I'm still here and I'm still a better magician than you. I think, because yep. he would, I think earlier he'd even mentioned, you know, I, I think you'll, you'll agree. Oh, that was yeah. when, ah, uh, that was, okay. So Angier yep. shows up with his daughter while he's about to be, before he's to be executed. And he rips up uh, Borden's tr- the secret to Borden's trick, and then he goes, oh, "Didn't you want my trick?" He's like, oh, "I think you'll agree that mine's better." Yeah. And then they touch touch back to that in the ending, where he's like, "You know, you made all these sacrifices, but it was for all of naught." You know, here I am. But then Jackman just delivers that line. You know, it was it was the look on their faces. Mm-hmm. If you could make them believe. You know, the audience knows the truth that the world is, is, you know, solid to the core and just is whatever. It mm-hmm. doesn't care about you. You know what I mean? There's no meaning there for us. But if you could make people believe for a second in something else, then you really had something. Mm-hmm. And that look on their faces just, oh, wow, wow. And then you, st- I mean, the way that the camera kind of starts to track backwards as you see all of those drowned yep versions of angier i mean there's few better endings in a film ever i think than this it's a um i mean it's there's 
it's a uh, a heady ending. I mean, it, it's uh, like the the emotional weight, and then because what we I think what we kind of don't really truly recognize is is the fact that that Angier isn't the Angier that we knew at the beginning of the movie. I mean, right? I mean that that guy, he that that guy's dead. He's been dead. You know, I'm like that's it. That's he's he's a copy, right? I mean, so even if it's said to us, I don't even think that we really truly comprehend. Right. Just, yeah. You know. So, like, the the sacrifices that he has made. I mean, shit. He he's already dead, and we're looking at other copies. But I mean, the original Angier's long gone, and yeah, I guess that's true. I sacrificed. I it was brave of me. I didn't. I never knew if I was going to be the man in the box or the prestige. And yeah, presumably at some point, you know, I guess each of these copies of Angier. Are are Angier yep. just the way that you know earlier? Whenever they actually make the discovery with Tesla that the hat has been copied, and there's just yep. a pile of hats yep. sitting outside of Tesla's laboratory, he goes, "Hey, don't you want to take your hat?" And he goes, "Which one's mine?" Uh, they are all your hat, Mister <laughs> Angier. Yep. So they are all Angier. There mm-hmm. is no differential. There. Is, yep. This is like simul. This is like simulacrum mm-hmm. or simulacra. In the sense that there is no the idea of the original itself is is a is a fiction, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Which I think plays into some themes. Again, I just came up with that too as far as watching this last night, just because I've been on that whole fucking simulation and simulacra kick, with right? Baudrillard. If you look over there too, look at that book behind you. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, that's been an obsession of mine for over a year. So I thought that was a, a funny, nice little tie-in. Yeah. That's something that's been on my mind for a while. But yeah, that was oh, just an amazing ending. And then, again, mentioning, I have to plug Tom York again. <laughs> the choice of that song coming on at that time, at that moment, and the lyrics of the song and the tone of the song and the music just fits so well. It was just like icing on the cake to leave you like... Wow. Wow. I mean, mm-hmm. I was, like I said, this film, this twist, this ending, all of this caught me completely flat-footed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you can, the payoff for me was just amazing. Right. Again, yeah, it was like the, the final act of it. I mean, the entire movie is good, right? But yeah. the, the, the ending of this movie, I'm not, it doesn't make this movie, but it, it does certainly enhance it and makes everything just little, just, just, heavier weight you know just um, it's more impressive all right so let's uh let's dip into the let's dip into the editing real quick okay um i don't have a lot to say about it other than i think that the editing in this film is so important it's super important to the overall success of the film some of the the cuts were just so well done the transitions I mean, I'd have to go back and really, really like watch it ten times to mm-hmm. really come up with all the editing points that I saw. But um, there's one where the tank is locking when Angier falls in. Uh, it's like they cut away, like he. It's whenever he lands, so he splash. We get the splash shot, and then we get a shot, a quick cutaway to the top of the tank closing. Right. Oh, it's just such a great edit. Yeah. It's fucking perfect. Like a little cutaway editing. I mean, I just noticed that. Mm-hmm. 
and it was such a like bam 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 edit too that was perfect to mm-hmm. capture like this you know permanence of you're locked in there now mm-hmm. to drown so i just have to highlight that that yeah. was it's that's that was nice don't overlook the editing in this film i think mm-hmm. it really makes it in so many ways just brilliantly edited lee smith was the editor on this by the way um but i'll move on unless you have an editing point i don't have anything that i mean there there's just a lot of nice little scenes and how they're kind of like uh cut together and everything so i I don't have any if there's anyone specifically that comes to mind uh i might have had something with the with the with with the door shutting and then coming like open like the the transporting man like kind of oh uh, like, yeah that was yeah i see what you're saying but that was good but short of those, I, nothing. I, I there's just not necessarily editing, but a couple just beautiful, beautiful. I don't know if we were going to segue into kind of yeah cinematography. Okay, was cool. next on All my right. list. So All right, then yeah. feel free. No, I'll, uh, I'll wait until we get going on that. But I just wanted to, I want to talk about the light bulb scene because that's just one of my favorite uh, shots <laughs> in the whole film. Definitely, yeah, that was a standout for me as well. But yeah, it's funny now that you mentioned that too. Like the editing, the way that we would see the trap door. And we would see this very quick succession of Mm -hmm. shots of like, bam, bam, bam. Mm -hmm. So skillfully crafted in the editing booth. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we'll move on to cinematography. Um, I think overall this film is just gorgeous. It's shot so well. It's such a dark, it's like a dark color palette, but it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the whole film is just beautiful shot after beautiful shot. But some of the highlights for me, Again, the light bulb scene that you reference stands out. I don't know if we should... Uh, let's get... Let's wait. Let's wait. Okay. Um, the first scene or shot that really gripped me in terms of the visuals was... It's the, the shot at the funeral. It's a very kind of long shot. We're looking down this super long mm-hmm. mausoleum hallway, and it's just... It's claustrophobic. The colors, mm. the white in contrast to all of the um, mourners there in black, something about that shot, just the the depth of the shot yep. is exquisite. So yep. that was one was of the kind of like a moment. tracking type uh, camera, as I recall. It was just, but yeah, I mean, beautiful. I know, I know this, it, it's just a beautiful shot. And especially when like uh, Borden is even walking away with the, you don't know. Uh, you don't know? Yeah. The close up on, on Jackman. His face, to his tortured face, and just mm-hmm. the tears welling up. Yeah. Um, another shot that really stood out for me was whenever um, Angier premieres as the great Danton. And it's sort of this bat where the camera's behind him, and it's sort of backlit, so it's the the stage lights are kind of blinding us, so we just get the, uh, the silhouette mm-hmm. of Angier. And that just looked amazing. And I think really all of the stage shots were so well done. They were fantastic. The way that the spotlight was used. Yep. And those, God, those, those long shots of the theater, whatever s- scene or uh, location they used for that theater was used over and over again. Mm-hmm. That was great. The way that that looked was just amazing. Mm-hmm. I think they even probably reused that set at the end as that theater, the old abandoned theater. I right. think they probably just redressed it differently. Because I, think I mean, it's the, a Christopher Nolan movie, so I mean, it could he very well could have went to an entirely different place and true. increased the budget another few million dollars. <laughs> um, next on my list was the light bulb scene. Mm-hmm. That's whenever Ali show 
has Azure with him, and they go to the snow-covered field, and mm-hmm. we have these giant light bulbs, and then they start coming on, mm-hmm. which just looks... It's so dark, and there's so the symmetry of the light bulbs. But I think what really, even beyond the obviously stunning visuals in that scene, what really sold that scene for me was the sound editing. Yeah. We hear that little electrical kind of zzz, yep. mm-hmm. zzz, crackle. That was fucking great. It, it's, it's just... It, it, Again, I guess that goes back to the editing yeah. of this film, which I think is just but, fucking amazing. Yeah, but it's just the... It, it's just... It's... It's sexy to look at that that scene in particular. It's just so it's, it's just so good. It's just like boom, that's your movie poster right there. Just you know, like that that shot is so good. The colors in the scene where um, Angier is following Borden, and he discovers that he's married and has a kid. Um, I feel like his wife Sarah had a purple coat on or something that just stood out. It just it just popped, and mm-hmm. with the browns and sort of the the uh, off-whites and the color palette in that mm-hmm. particular scene is one that sort of stood out for me and was really beautiful, mm-hmm. a beautiful visual. Do you, have, do you have Angier taking the bow uh, below the stage? Like, the- <laughs> Yeah, that was great too. Mm-hmm. The way that the light sort of glinted through the cracks yep. and mm-hmm. the boards and stuff, yeah. Um, again, the, the David Bowie walking across as those... Yep electrical bolts or I don't mm-hmm. know electrical current <laughs> yeah the, yeah exactly you have strikes the, through them because what what do they call that they the the Edison it's Tesla. like a Jacob's ladder but no it's not a Jacob's ladder it's something else I forget that you could even I remember it like in the early 90s you would buy those things at Spencer's it was right like the globe yeah. that you would touch it I forget what the fuck those are called there's a name for them I forget what that was called as well. Oh, he... Fuck, that just reminds me too. He had such a great line about um, man's reach exceeding his grasp and then That's man's a, grasp exceeding his nerve. And he was like kind of bitching about how you can only... You're only allowed to change the world once. Mm-hmm. The, the second time I tried to change the world, they asked me to retire. <laughs> I thought that was... Uh, he was talking about society only being able to tolerate so much change at one point which I thought was was great and so true. Like people are locked into their viewpoints and like, like they don't want to budge. You can't, you can't rock the boat too much. You can't right. too much change because people freak out. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the quote, I think the, the full quote, and I'm going back to like my senior high school year of English is a man's reach should not exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for Robert Browning. Ah, Nice. Little Victorian era. Po- ah, that was very well fitting for the time period, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's some sparing use of handheld photo- handheld photography in this that gets mixed in here and there. It's very skillfully done, I think, in that opening scene I was describing earlier with the, we'll call them canaries, the yellow mm-hmm. birds. Oh, right. There's a little yep. bit of that at that point. Um, that's another shot, again, we like look through this long series of cages from the side, like this profile shot. And it's just, it, it's very reminiscent, honestly, of that um, funeral scene as the depth of it and just gives it such amazing depth. Oh, there's all of the different little, I apologize. And I hate, I, I'm sorry for interrupting, but that just reminded me and we were talking about editing. And even though I, I generally won't ever want to call attention to suicide, the the editing with with her in there with the and then with the birds and everything and then her just looking 
looking at the rope. You you don't need to get go through the whole process of her putting it around her neck or anything like that. I mean, it, it, it's it's wasted, you know. But then the editing, boom, and then to you know her her doing it, and then you know she's hanged in the room, and you've got the all the birds around and everything like that with the so that I mean there, there it was nice editing within that scene of something that obviously is not a enjoyable thing, but it it was good. I I liked how that was cut. Also goes back to the amazing screenplay because it's very much show don't tell. And yep. I think we very you know what I mean? It yep. very quickly trans you know, mm-hmm. communicates what happens without it being <laughs> you yep. know without us delving too deeply into that. Um but yeah that's in terms of sigma cinematography, I really don't have much else to tackle. Any final thoughts on on how this was shot? Uh one other light bulb bit. I liked uh the the uh, the Tesla bit as far as like showing kind of electricity between two people and what, like where he held uh, yeah. the light okay. bulb. I yeah, like that, that. That was great too. That's what I got. I guess back to th- to themes. I think that one of the of the simulac simulacrum is very interesting, especially given the context. We didn't really talk, we talked a little bit about that metaphor of sort of the bird trick that we early on are shown. Mm -hmm. We kind of, I think, didn't give that its due earlier in that, okay, so there was a magician that, so he would make this bird disappear, but ultimately he was smashing the bird. It was in a cage. The cage was set to collapse and crush the bird, mm-hmm. and then he would simply reproduce another alive bird. Yep. And that was the sort of trick that ultimately is a metaphor for Angier mm-hmm. later on, foreshadowing. Yep. And uh, you mentioned definitely that the um, Sarah's, it was her nephew, I believe, caught it and started mm-hmm. crying because he had killed the the original bird. Where's mm-hmm. his Where's his brother, I guess, yep. was also the foreshadow. It was yep. two birds with one stone. It was foreshadowing yep. both mm-hmm. Angier and... Borden. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that idea of the copy and the original and just even nixing the idea of there being an original, mm-hmm. I think is such a provocative idea itself. Especially whenever you try to work out the the, the logic of Angier and you know what I mean? That's like, you've got to do that on the, the second or third watch of this film yeah. before you even make that sort of realization that mm-hmm. something else is, you know what I mean? There's a lot more to this than just a double. There's this whole light, you know, logic of what's who's who and how is that determined? And there being some amount of like, I don't know, we could even call it quantum indeterminacy. Right. That Tesla sort of touches on. He's like, oh, these things never quite work out how you expect. Yeah. <laughs> The, the 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 trick was everything, right? I mean, who? I mean, it's. I mean, it, it, it's all about it's all about the illusion or the trick, and what what the audience gets from it, and and that's that's where the magician lives on is because they were the ones that created that. So they what they created was far more important than themselves, which. And when they talk about self-sacrifice, it's just a, a twisted take on it. I think another highlight thematically beyond what I had said about 
the sort of material world and escaping that and sort of how that they're supernatural, the rational, all of that sort that sort of uh, I guess synthesis of those ideas is the very important I think discussion that Angier has with Tesla about obsession. And he's he recommends to Angier, you know, my advice is to throw this thing, yep. you know, you should destroy this thing. It'll this can only bring you mm-hmm. sadness and misery and answer your questions and he's like, Well, haven't I, haven't your obsessions, you know, brought you anything good? And he's kinda like, Yes, but now they I am their slave mm-hmm. and they will destroy me. <laughs> I thought that was just wow. God, such a dark outlook, but I fucking love it. Yep. <laughs> and that I mean, that's how I feel sometimes too, it's like my obsessions with storytelling and creating something are going to end ultimately be that my end my you know what I mean ultimately lead me to a bad end in some respects because I don't know if I'll take the time to sit around and like appreciate what I have and really be present in the moment is like I'm always thinking about this this fake this uh, simulated sort of world or this fantasy world that I want to create and like communicate through. Sounds like, so sad. And storytelling <laughs> and like storytelling being something that like there's an obsession. Like I feel like I have this obsession with obs- escaping that very like material, you know, that I am a substance that is going to perish, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So like focusing all of your energy into this sort of fantasy storytelling mode whenever there's like there's real things that are happening you know mm-hmm. what i mean and i can be missing those because i'm off thinking about something you know what i mean some stupid story that really you know the secret impresses no one yeah the trick that you use it for is everything mhm so so i don't know that's kind of glass <laughs> half empty <laughs> aspect hey. of it uh, you know, I, I won't deny that I'm I'm not the most optimistic person in, in many regards, especially like if I take a very logical approach to the, if I'm using Occam's razor, I mean, I, to me, I think if you follow logic to its end, you're going to like, you're not going to find happiness. You know what I mean? At the end of that trail, you're going to, you will be <laughs> come a slave to that obsession with trying to find meaning. You just can't, you just have to accept I mean, I guess that's the double-edged sword of it, though, because I forgot about this, too, is that, you know what I mean? There's an element of Camusian absurdism that, you know what I mean? You have to sort of create your own meaning mm-hmm. through this narrative or this trick or what, you know what I mean? Whatever the case may be. Right. Like, that's the only way to give meaning to your life is to create something as well. So you can look at it in terms of two different competing existential viewpoints. Mm-hmm. I guess the absurdism of Camus versus like the nihilistic existentialism of someone like Nietzsche that would be very much like, well, I guess Nietzsche even would say that this artistic pursuit, creating your own meaning, is that's the how you escape the nihilism, mm-hmm. the meaninglessness of after the death of God, which I think all of this... It's definitely in the, it's not at the forefront of this film, but it's certainly in the background. It's certainly like these themes are sort of built on, I think, ultimately that bedrock idea. Again, at the turn of the century, you know, we're entering modernity at this point. And this is, you know, maybe 20 to 30 years. The film is probably set 20 to 30 years after 
Nietzsche's sort of heyday with his writing. I'm not gonna lie. I'm I'm by no means an expert on Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, of what I'm not, I haven't really studied much of of his work or writing, so I can't really delve too much or pretend uh, to offer much. Well, that's what that's what I'm here for. I'm here <laughs> to bring up all this bullshit hey. out, that exists outside of the text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. But yeah, I I think that really sums up. So yeah, for the people listening, I'm just basically just smiling <laughs> and nodding right now. <laughs> I thought thought that very well sums up the ultimate conceit of this film being, you know, this urge to be creative and obsession obsessive with your creativity mm-hmm. to escape this material world. And you know, I guess you could take that Either way, you could take that as as a, the absurdist approach and just relish in that opportunity, or you could take it also very dark of like, what other choice do we have but to shoulder on and create something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think for me, that sort of, that wraps it up. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share? On the prestige, anything on, on yeah, literally the prestige, the, the third act, the, uh, the, the closing of this film, it's the closing of this podcast. This is the prestige of the podcast. It's a, uh, it's, it's a really, really well done film and there's a lot of meat and potatoes to it. And I mean, definitely, definitely a lot of stuff, uh, for, for discussion. And it's, if you haven't seen it. I don't know where you've been the past, you know, decade and a half, but go out and watch it. It's really good. Um, but I, I don't have any lasting, really unique perspectives on it other than just it's it's solid. It's a solid movie. I don't I don't think there are really too many holes in it other than I just had a hard time. I've always had a hard time just really the the center conflict uh, that I know why. I know why Angier resents Borden and it stems from the death of his wife, but Borden is far and away a better magician. And I I feel that him sabotaging one of his, one of his acts before Angier was ripping him off. I just, I've never really understood it. I've never really saw why, why he cared like to go ahead and even if even if it wasn't Borden, but it was you know Fallon, it was the, the the brother. You know to go ahead and pay back for you know what he had to do or what would happen to him. I've just I've never I've never really bought that, but that could just be my own my own philosophies and you know just but based on what I had seen of Borden, I've I, I I've just always had a a problem with that little aspect of the film i think there's a resentment there and i think this is probably i think nolan this is like an autobiographical element to the to the writing is that you know we sort of have this comparison of even within the actors themselves of you know bale is considered the artist and jackman is like the movie star right right and i think that sort of that a dialectic that's present there also goes to 
as a filmmaker, you know what I mean? Angier would be the Hollywood, you know, he would mm -hmm. be, he would be Ron Howard and, you know, Borden would be the auteur, you know right. I mean? He would be like the, the guy that's taking risks and trying to create something new rather than these old favorites that mm -hmm. everybody loves. So I think maybe, maybe that sort of is the explanation. Yeah. And very well could be that and like the element of class where, yeah, that too, where Borden was more like working class and Algier clearly, you know, clearly had money, you know, he's, he said it at least one time where like money's no object, you know, like this is a dude that comes from wealth and yeah. So, but I don't know. It's just, like I said, that's just the one thing about this film that is just kind of, cause it, it's what sets the story in motion. So it's the one element of the film that I've just been like, okay, I get it. There's just been like, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. But, but again, it's, it's, it's small because of the fact that it's not enough to make me, to take me out of the film. And, and and track these characters but that's it that's all that's my my final i mean i think that if you go back and watch there's definitely there are relative plot holes here and there which i don't think you know what i mean i'm not someone who's super worried about plot i'm worried about theme i think mm -hmm. oftentimes more than and feeling that more than anything when it comes to movies than specific plot, everything having to be super logical because it's a fucking fantasy anyway. Like, right. And no matter what, this is a film. Like, it's a fiction, right? Like, there's a certain amount of, you know what I mean? D what is it? Dispension of disbelief, right? Sure. Um, so I don't ne always necessarily worry about the finer points of that. I, I think a lot of people on the internet, you know, in this nowadays, like, that's the thing. It's like, oh, this fucking plot. Whatever, man. As long as you're... Yeah, as long as it's not some egregiously stupid thing, then I'm willing to suspend that disbelief. But I, I'll. We already know that robots can fly. Why the <laughs> hell is like Admiral Holdo staying on that ship when we know that she can get off the ship with everybody else and you just have a droid fly into that star? To, uh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of it's like. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do have one final question to pose. Okay, let's hear it. Are you watching closely? <laughs>